I feel like I've watched at least one of the movies in all of these, so I can contribute a bit more than in the first half. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I was like, I feel really bad because I should be contributing. And oh, okay. That was me last week, so you know how I feel. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, okay, was, um, yeah. Yes. Our next matchup is uh, my uh, my uh, Christopher Nolan matchup. Yes. Because that's how we do. Um, the first one is Inception, which is my favorite film by him. It's so good. Uh, I guess I'll just introduce it and then we can talk about it. Um, 2010 science fiction action film written and directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, who produced it with Emma Thomas, who is his wife, which is very cute. Uh, and stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Ken Watanabe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, Marion Cotillard, Elliot Page, Tom Hardy, uh, Tom Berenger, uh, Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how do we even explain this film, Josh? Do you want to take the lead on this one since you haven't been talking a lot? Uh, one moment, sorry. I'm eating my cookie still. Eat your cookie. Yes. If you want to explain this one, I can try to tackle Tenet. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so Inception is all about people who perform corporate espionage by invading people's dreams. This is like the kind of stuff that Christopher Nolan does best, and he's at his best in this film. Uh, he's taking you know these very kind of mind melty, mind bendy uh, sci-fi concepts and uh, mapping them onto these like really intricate uh, maps of like character uh, interactions and relationships and things like that. Uh, so you have Cobb, who uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is, um, you know, one of these uh, corporate espionage thieves, uh, who did a lot of dream diving with his wife and now feels uh, guilt surrounding the circumstances of her death. So, what do you want to talk about with this one? Uh, is talk about why you love it. It's so good, right? Okay, this is a great one. Yeah, um, I haven't seen it in a while, actually. But I think what really makes Christopher Nolan movies for me isn't because they're all like kind of like puzzles, right? They're like little mind games. You got to like get in there with your brain and try to figure it out and piece it together. But when you piece it together, it's not just like, it's not just the heady concept. It's the emotional undertones that really drive this movie. I think um Cobb's devotion to his family his struggles with understanding what's real and what's not with his wife um that's portrayed in a very subtle way by Leonardo DiCaprio and that's just really really cool to me yeah and I think that this is one of Leonardo DiCaprio's best performances in terms of film um if we really wanted to we could get into uh, the discussion in feminist uh, film theory uh, that's called fridging uh, in terms of, you know, like how women die to advancement stories. Um, I think Inception is one of the few examples where I don't feel sick of it every single time I watch the film. Uh -huh. um, because, firstly, because Mal, as like a dream presence, is very active in Cobb's life. She yes. is actively threatening... Uh, their things. And even though like it's not really Mal, it is his projection of his guilt about Mal. And I think that that's a really interesting way to take that. It's kind of like a twist on that old trope. And it's, it's really interesting the, the way that they've done it. Yeah. I think also, too, like right, when we talk about fridging, we talk about this kind of shock horror that's mm. meant to impact the hero for a little bit. Right. Yeah. And they kind of forget like that. That's the only reason that the character is a character. And yeah. Mal is really fleshed out in her own way in that she is haunting 
the um, protagonist Cobb to the through point the that film. Yeah. through the entire film, to the point that he is jeopardizing the mission just by being there. Yeah, right? yeah, and it's it's so good and like it's so like nuanced in its portrayal of her. Like she used to be this really kind and loving presence. And he still feels that warmth and love for her every single time he sees her, even though she's actively trying to kill him in his dreams. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's really fascinating to me. Um, yeah. And it's, it's good. I love it. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anything else to say about Inception? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, big question. Which of Michael Caine's performances in a Christopher Nolan film is your favorite? Okay. This is hard. I need to get things through all of the... <laughs> Uh, I really actually, um, we have talked about the different Batmans a little bit. Yes. Um, and you can kind of discuss whatever you want to discuss about the Batman actors and the story behind him. But I really like his Alfred. I think that his Alfred is kind of my definitive version of Alfred. Yeah, I really liked his Alfred. He brings a warmth and a caring. Like, you can tell that he really, really cares about. Bruce, and he raised this boy mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think anyone else. I love Andy Circus. I thought he was really good as Alfred in the Batman, but I didn't get that kind of feeling, and that's kind of what I needed in Alfred. You know? Yeah. No, I feel that for sure. So I think I'll go with Alfred. Yes, I agree. I okay, remember. Alfred's a good choice for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yay! Yay! So Tenet. 2020 film, directed, written, and co-produced by Christopher Nolan and Emma Thomas again, because they're wonderful and fantastic. Um, stars John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Dimple Kapadia, Michael Caine, and Kenneth Branagh. Um, yes. Everyone in this movie shines. Mm-hmm. This movie is so great. So the thing that I love about Tenet is that it is when I when I think of how Christopher Nolan must write his movies, I tend to think of it like he weaves a story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not so much that he draws a line. He like wants everything meshed. He wants everything tight and secure in the plot. Mm-hmm. And Tenet is like, he's like, let's go as crazy as possible, but still do what I do best, mm-hmm. which is this movie. So it starts off with an ex-CIA agent. Well, he is currently a CIA agent, the protagonist, uh, in an extraction at an opera house in Kiev. And um, he is captured during the mission. He takes a suicide pill, and then he wakes up and finds out that he's still alive. Um, He passed the test, and he's now kind of introduced into a secret organization called Tenet. Um, which is all about basically, oh, this is, it's so hard to explain this right. movie without actually watching this movie, yeah. but basically they're like objects that the intra- entropy of them has been inverted so that they're moving backwards through time. And so these items are popping up in the ar- archaeological record and Tenna is like there to make sure that like something bad is going to happen, they're going to try to stop it or put kind of put a slowdown to it or like basically do the best that they can to make sure the world doesn't end. Yeah, it's pretty much. That's basically it. Uh- <laughs> yeah. 
and it gets crazier from there. There's mm-hmm. backwards time. There's all sorts of like you ha- you really have to watch this movie twice at to least even really comprehend what's going on. Yeah, yeah, because you miss so much the first because it doesn't start you off at the beginning of the story. It starts you off in the middle, mm-hmm. and it does not give you any like time to catch up. No time to breathe. Nothing. It's at all, just yeah. like we're going, and if you miss stuff, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to come back for it. So yeah. it's I love it so much. I just think it's so fantastic. And the protagonist, he has a really like subtle kind of characterization, a sort of a beauty to his role. Mm-hmm. I think I think really he and Robert Pattinson's character, Neil, kind of exemplify like the best of who they can possibly be in their line of work. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's all of this subterfuge and backstabbing and all of this different like this is a very messy world that they're in and they still manage to be the best of the best yeah and And what's what's really interesting about that too is not just that they are like the best of the best in their fields but that they are the best of the best to each other like Mm -hmm. it takes them a little while to warm up to each other but like after they complete their first mission like they're pretty much like like they're clicked like they like they just they get each other like they really understand they can really uh, interact with each other really well and i think that their relationship founds one of my favorite parts of this film is that like it's just like in this world where everybody is so awful and cruel to each other all the time they're just buds and that's so fun (laughs) i really i really need christopher nolan to make a sequel to this movie because i need to see the other side of the relationship yeah and i I need to see Neil getting to know the protagonist, like exactly. I need to see this because that was what made this movie for me. John David Washington and Robert Pattinson had such excellent chemistry. Elizabeth Debicki, I don't want to like sh- shade her at all because she was so good, and her depiction of like this woman who has put up with so much from her abusive husband and is taking a stand was so powerful and strong. Yeah, um, and then I really, I don't want to say I like Kenneth Branagh as Sator, because he is, like, an abusive, like, piece of crap. He is, so there's, like, there's villains that you love to hate, and he doesn't, he doesn't feel like a villain, because he feels so realistic as an abusive, controlling egotist, right? Yeah, he's extremely easy to hate because he's not a villain. He's just like an like just a horrible person. He's just an abuser, right? Like Yeah, it's horrendous. And like yeah, it's, yeah, it's really difficult watching him interact with Elizabeth Debicki's character sometimes. Yeah. But mm-hmm. like it it all drives at home when she finally gets to just murk him on the deck of that yacht. It's so good. Yes. I mean, I think it <laughs> It proves, if anything, it proves Kenneth Branagh's ability to to act right. Because mm-hmm. he, I, when I watch this movie, usually when I watch a movie with Kenneth Branagh in it, I see Kenneth Branagh right. Like when he's in Harry Potter, I see Kenneth Branagh. When he is usually when he is um, in a Shakespeare movie, he's playing himself right. As you know, you see him. I don't think of him as Kenneth Branagh in this movie. Oh no! Yeah, he's just straight satyr. Like he is, like just horrifying, mm-hmm. and so like overwhelmingly powerful and villainous. It's mm, I could talk about his character alone for 
potentially hours. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, the other part that I wanted to talk about with this film was uh, the entire sequence in the Oslo airport. Yeah. Which is the first time that you really see time being inverted, um, like in like a really uh, concrete sense. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's like it's just such a tight little nugget that introduces mm-hmm. you to how the like the the last half of the film is going to work when they do their stupid little <laughs> temporal pincer movement thing. Uh, <laughs> I call it stupid. It's not stupid. It's incredibly dense and scientifically fascinating. And no wonder it took Christopher uh, Nolan like a decade and a half to write this movie because oh my gosh, yeah, how does he do sure. it? Uh, <laughs> like if you was... thought Inception confused you, Tenet, we'll do it tenfold. Um, but there's like something to do with a stolen bit of art, and it's currently being hold, held at the Oslo airport in their Freeport facility. The protagonist and Neil have to go rescue this fake painting so that they can get some kind of clue to something. I don't remember. It's been a little while since I've seen the film. I'm sorry. But so they have to go and get this painting, and you s- and it's again, it's more heist movie shenanigans, right? I told you I'm a heist girl. Like it's them, like <laughs> you know, counting down the seconds for how long the door is going to be closed or open for, and how much they're going to have with with uh, without air after the air cuts off because it thinks that the art is on fire, and mm-hmm. uh, and then you get to see it all play out in reverse because they've gone through the little thing and they're like all of us, and then you realize, oh, he was fighting himself the whole time. Oh, that's so what? Whoa, mind blown, right? It's just such a tight little sequence, and it teaches you how this world works so compactly yeah. that I just, I really loved it. I think it was I so think fun. that's another way that this movie works through really well is that it takes you step by step. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, okay, it's like Christopher Nolan is you, like holding your hand. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, we're going to show you an inverted bullet, let you wrap your mind around with that. Now we're going to show you an inverted person. And now here's this masterpiece. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what do you think about uh, these films moving forward? Hmm. I, we talked so much about Tenet that I'm kind of leaning towards Tenet, but like initially I did have Inception down um, just because I think Inception is the tighter of the two films. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas Tenet is very, like you kind of get either or with Christopher Nolan movies, right? Either you get like this heady, uh, or it's kind of on like a balance, it's like a balance beam or not a balance, like a seesaw. Uh, where uh, the more crazy science stuff you have, like the less interesting character stuff you have, and then like the more interesting character stuff you have, kind of the less you get to play with the crazy sci-fi elements, right? Yeah. Um, the films where Christopher Nolan is at his best is where he manages to balance these, which is uh, Interstellar and Inception, and I think that Tenet is included in that, but to a little bit of a lesser extent. Um, like the protagonist to me is. Like kind of milk is <laughs> not that like I love John David Washington's performance, but he doesn't yeah. really have a lot to do except for understand, right? He mm-hmm. just needs to understand what's going on and play his part, um, so that he can go on to become the founder of Tenant. I the think future. that's that's right. It's kind of like his origin story. Yeah, it's he is exactly learning his all story. of this with us, yeah. and then at the end you get to see like, oh, this is who he is. Yeah, right? like, oh, this is who he's going to become. But you don't, but you get, don't a lot of that. get that a lot in the movie. Yeah, um, and I kind of had this revelation when I first watched this film that, um, or I think it was like the second or third time I saw it in theaters. Like the protagonist is following like the Campbell monomyth in like a very, very formulaic, simple way. 
-hmm. It's just that it's surrounded by all of the science nonsense gobbledygook (laughs) that it makes it kind of bends your brain around it. Whereas, you know, with like Cobb, you're kind of getting, you know, a little bit more of a nuanced story. You're kind of getting more nuance with his relationships to the other characters, like his other his relationships with the other characters actually matters and it's not just neil <laughs> like as much as i love neil i do love neil i think robert pattinson does an amazing job i just i think that tenet could have used just like a fraction more time baking or like mm-hmm. maybe it would be better if they do ever make that sequel where we get to see neil's version of the protagonist a little bit more and we get to see that fleshed out a little bit and we get to kind of complete the story does that make sense yeah. um i do love tenet still but I do think Inception pulls just that little bit more ahead of me, for me. Okay. I mean, I'm going to, it's your side of the graph. <laughs> so I'm going to, like, gonna humbly you, succeed to I your I mean, opinion. I would love to hear reasons, like, if you think I'm wrong. No, I think you actually summarized it really well. I just, you know, yeah? okay. I have very strong feelings for both of these movies. So it's equally, you know, it's just as hard for me, right? Yes, fair. I also feel like going into, further into the... Um, bracket that it's going to be very much based on emotion mm, for sure. win the day. Yeah. and I think as much as I love Tenet mm. it's got kind of the complexity that would kick it out a little earlier on yeah that's fair yeah okay cool Inception moves on Woo-hoo. okay our next pairing uh, this is my Hitchcock bracket because, uh, despite all of the terrible things Alfred Hitchcock did to women, he made great movies. <laughs> so here he is. I have seen Rear Window. I have not seen Strangers on a Train. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, let's do Strangers on a Train first, and then we can talk about Rear Window a little bit more. Um, okay. okay. Uh, Strangers on a Train is a 1951 American psychological f- thriller film noir produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, based on the 1950 novel Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith, um, starring Farley Granger, Ruth Roman, Robert Walker, and Leo G. Carroll. I don't know any of those people, but I do know this movie. This is a fun movie. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> uh, the entire concept of this movie, I the reason I picked this instead of like another more well-known Hitchcock film is because I think it is pretty underrated, and I want people to see it because I do think it's one of like his sleeper hits. I think it's. Um, a really, really good example of Hitchcock's work, but it is a little less talked about. Anyway, I'll just keep going. Uh, Strangers on a Train uh, concerns um, this tennis star who wants to divorce his wife. His wife has been unfaithful to him. They haven't, they've been separated for a really long time, uh, but she refuses to sign the divorce papers. Um, And this is making it really hard for him because he wants to marry his new girlfriend, but they can't get married until they get divorced. So, He's kind of, uh, the film follows this tennis star as, you know, we are kind of introduced to this problem that he has, and then he gets on this train and sits next to this guy named uh, Bruno, uh, who recognizes this guy, you know, he's a tennis star, right? And kind of recognizes, like, the drama that this guy has been going through because it's been, like, all over the papers and everything. Um, And then, so he kind of sidles up to this guy and explains this concept that he had for a murder. Um, and, you know, this tennis star kind of thinks that it's tongue-in-cheek, but this guy is like, you know, wouldn't it be so interesting if these two random strangers met on a train, and each of them wanted another person dead, and then uh, they went and did those murders together, mm. or did them, and, like, they swapped murders, basically. Okay, uh, so I, the, I have heard of this movie. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like if you kill my father, I'll kill your wife for you so that we can go about our separate lives. And yes. the police will never know because there's no murder. There's like no alibi for it. Like, yeah, there's no like way we'll, you'll have an alibi. Us. There'll be no motive. Yeah. Um, and like, so neither of us will be suspected. And, you know, this tennis star, his name is Guy, just kind of like, he goes along with it because like, of course, that's what you're going to do if the psychopath comes up and starts talking to you like this on the train, right? Um, and then it starts getting really dicey when his ex-wife turns up dead. Uh, and so he's able to marry his sweetheart, but like he can't stop thinking about that one guy on the train. And then he like, starts appearing at different events. He's like, hey, are you going to do my murder for me yet? And he's like, I never actually agreed to that. And it's it like ends in this crazy scene at this carnival where like he they're being like he's being stalked through the carnival ground by this guy that murdered his ex-wife and like now kind of wants to kill him too and it's mm -hmm. just so tense and like wonderfully done it's a perfect example of hitchcock horror that i think everybody should see it and i think it's a really interesting concept so nice <laughs> that's my pitch for it that's pretty good yeah it's yeah it's really good I and I, I'm gonna kind of spoil the bracket for everybody. I don't think it lives up to Rear Window because I do think that Rear Window is Hitchcock's seminal masterpiece. Yeah, uh, but there are, <laughs> a, but like there are a lot of Hitchcock films that don't get the credit that they deserve, and I think Strangers on a Train is one of them. And I, if you like, if you like mystery thrillers, you will like that one for sure, definitely. Um, yeah, and then Rear Window is 1954, a mystery thriller film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by John Michael Hayes, based on a 1942 short story, uh, starring James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Correll, Thelma Ritter, Raymond Burr, etc., etc. Uh, I've seen this film once a year, at least, for the past, like, six or seven years. Uh <laughs> Um, the very first time I ever saw it was in, uh, it would have been Halloween 2014, not Halloween 2014. It would have been in like 2014, early 2015. Uh, my very first year of college, uh, we watched it for my arts class and I had this really, really surreal experience where like, I kind of, like, I was really exhausted from doing my schoolwork. So I was just sitting in the auditorium where they were showing the film and I like I kind of started drifting off right around the same time LB Jeffries is drifting off. Mm. And I kind of had this like sleep wake experience the same way that he does when the murder is happening. Ooh, that's crazy. And like I was experiencing like this crazy murder in real time as LB Jeffries kind of falling in and out of sleep. And it was transcendent. It was so good. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because, yeah. like, I was with Jeffries not sure if the murder had happened or not. And, like, you do still get that effect watching the movie because, yeah. mm -hmm. but, like, it was just on a whole other level. And, and it made me fall in love with this movie, and I've seen it every year since then. And so I should probably go back and explain a little bit more. Um, the story of Rear Window is that this photographer, L.B. Jeffries, uh, got this really, really cool shot of this car crashing in a NASCAR race at the expense of he was on the track when it happened, and so he broke his leg getting this shot. because men uh <laughs> um and so he's confined to his greenwich village apartment in a wheelchair unable to move because like he's in like a lake cast up to the hip bone uh so he can't do anything for himself basically so he's got this nurse that comes by played by the inimitable Thelma ritter she's so funny she's just like stereotype new york gossip woman she's so good <laughs> i love her to death um and his girlfriend grace kelly uh who 
there's a little there's kind of like a weird personality conflict between them because like she like she cl- very clearly loves him and like wants to like express interest in his hobbies and stuff uh but he is very very convinced that she shouldn't that like you know like she's a socialite she is a socialite in the film uh so like he doesn't think that he shouldn't that she should be with somebody like him he thinks that she- she's way too good for him uh, and that she shouldn't debase herself by like going on all these stupid adventures with him that kind of thing he's convinced that she would hate it if she got to do the chance and like just won't ever like listen to her (laughs) and it's it's kind of frustrating but it is you know a personality trait that is addressed throughout the film um and then kind of the selling point of rear window is that it all takes place within the apartment except for like the last 30 minutes um it's not even the last 30 minutes it's like the last 10 minutes just don't worry about it um (laughs) but you get to it's kind of this really interesting thesis on voyeurism yeah voyeur it's this really interesting commentary on voyeurism because uh the murderer is not the only apartment that jeffries is looking into at any given point um though that is like kind of the meat and potatoes of the story uh, he sees uh, this dancer who's like really, really uh, popular with guys, and guys come over to her apartment all the time, but she's not romantically interested in any of them, and she seems to be pining for something else. Uh, he sees this lonely single woman, probably in like her late 30s, early 40s. Miss Lonely Hearts. Miss Lonely Hearts. Oh, that that one will break your heart for sure. That one, like, okay. The scene with her, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. Because you really need to watch it for the first time. Because you need to watch it for the first time. But that scene is so suspenseful. It, it it's genuinely more suspenseful than the scene where Jeffrey's almost gets murdered. Like seriously, oh my gosh. Like, that's I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Poor Miss Lonely. I feel so sorry for her. Um, yeah, and then there's like a pianist who's like having like a really really hard time like writing anything, and like he's clearly getting depressed. But then he manages to sell something, and so like he's all happy again. And, like, as he's watching into these, like, little windows of other people's lives, like, this is kind of something that he's done all his life, right? He's a photographer, he he captures these moments. But having to just sit there and watch, like, it's clearly starting to weigh on him, which is why everybody is so hesitant at first to believe that he thinks that he's seen a murder. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, you've gone stir-crazy, it's hot, you're going nuts. You're sitting here in your house, you haven't seen anything... Um, but then, uh, like, as Jeffrey is, is still convinced that something is happening, and he has the privilege of his lovely, wonderful girlfriend, Grace Kelly, uh, to, uh, like, actually believe him and understand what's going on. And so, like, he's, like, she's kind of his eyes and ears into the um, the apartment uh, where he believes the murder took place. And, like, yeah. as they're trying to prove that, yes, this woman has been murdered, and yes, her husband did it, and, like, everything. It's just like it's so suspenseful and it plays like it's almost like the film is gaslighting you a little bit because you're not sure if it's really happening or not. Like you don't know if there's actually a murder. Maybe Jeffries is crazy. It's written so well and it's so tightly woven and it's like it's 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 I don't know, it's perfect. Like this this is mm-hmm. it's a great film. Like <laughs> I don't know, talk it's more about really it good. so that I can gather my thoughts. Um, I just think it's kind of like a case study on suspense, mm-hmm. right? Like it just shows, especially because you're stuck there with Jeffries in his apartment for the entire movie. Yeah. Um, you're kind of trapped, right? You're stuck. You can't do anything. 
mm-hmm. uh, in the way that other movies, you know, make you feel free or liberated, right? This movie makes you feel like you cannot do anything. You can't go anywhere. You can only suspect. Yes. And, and that's the beauty of it. In that way, it's such a brilliant, like, not really a whodunit, because you don't even know if there's a murder that was committed. Mm-hmm. It's a, what happened? <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I love this film. It's just a delight to watch. Um, just looking through the Wikipedia article, um, when it first came out, uh, the critic Crosley, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times uh, noted that uh, the film is not significant and that what it has to say about people and human nature is pretty superficial and glib. Um, but continuing the quote, but it does expose many facets of the loneliness of city life and it tacitly demonstrates the impulse of morbid curiosity, which I agree wholeheartedly with. Like, there's not a lot being said about Jeffries's like character. Like, there's not like a huge mm-hmm. change that he really goes through. Um, besides that, like, he lets his girlfriend Grace Kelly fantasize about going on an adventure with him. Like, that's kind of like it's a superficial and glib, right? Like, there's not yeah. really a great thesis about human nature being made, um, but it does take a really interesting view into living in a big city like this, um, your relationship with your neighbors when you live in a big city like this, um, and, like, the nature of, like, being stir-crazy, and it's just, like, and then, like, above all is the suspense of the suspenseful moments. It's so good! It's so good. So yeah, Rear Window moves on to this for me, like I said, because it's great. Yeah, but... I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, this next one, I know you have seen both of these films. So yes. uh, do you want to introduce Knives Out? Because I know you love it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you excited for the second one? It's releasing soon. Uh, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see what they do and how they. I you know it, Ryan Johnson. I love everything I've ever seen by him, which is only The Last Jedi and Knives Out. But uh, that's my hot take, Ethan. I like The Last Jedi. (laughs) Is he in there with you? (laughs) He is in the room, yes. (laughs) He just texted me, boo. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it, 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 it takes. It starts off as a very okay. Sorry, I'll introduce the movie. Knives Out is a 2019 American dark comedy mystery film written and directed by Ryan Johnson and produced by Johnson and Ram Bergman. It's directed by Ryan Johnson, written by Ryan Johnson, and stars a whole cast of wonderful characters: Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Anna De Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Langford, Jaden Martell, and starring the most enigmatic and wonderful Christopher Christopher Plummer. Everyone is so good in this film. Okay, so what it does is it sets up a traditional murder mystery, right? Yeah, it's like it's, it's a very it's a very uh, Agatha Christie style murder mystery. Yeah, like like clue, right? Yes. Very very traditional. Uh, you're trying to figure out there's this uh, 85-year-old mystery novelist who dies the night of his birthday and his throat is slit and the police are like, yeah, no, it was definitely a suicide, but there's a very famous private detective named Benoit Blanc played by Daniel Craig, who is hired to trying to figure out because he gets a notice that says, you know, there's more here than meets this than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. 
so he is like he repeatedly interviews the main characters and we learn pretty early on in the film that Harlan's nurse Marta Cabrera played by Ana de Armas um, accidentally mixed up his medications and uh, gave him a shot so that he overdosed on morphine mm-hmm. so it's not it's actually a murder right it's not well I guess it would be like a not a murder, it, it, but like a, like an accidental death, not a murder. Yeah, it's an accidental death, not a suicide. Yeah. So it just like what it does is like it it like starts off twisted, right, and then it untwists, and then it retwists. It's so good. Um, I'm not gonna spoil it because in case anyone hasn't seen this movie, because it's so good and everyone should watch it. It's so good that even my grandma recommended it to us. <laughs> that's true grandma did recommend it to us we were talking about movies i think that like we thought would appeal to her in a conversation once and she was like well yeah but have you guys seen knives out and we i like, was like you out? <laughs> she was like it was so good yeah yeah but I like, like if it was going to be anybody in our extended family i think it would be grandma just because i feel like she would be the most likely to like an agatha christie so yeah she's kind of like got that uh agatha christie spirit in her um yeah so i think i think this movie is really really good in a lot of really cool ways uh mm-hmm. in the like right so there's the plot that is so just turns everything on its head and then turns it on its head again and then there's all of the acting which is all phenomenal everyone is a really good actor and really good at being their actor um i don't want to get too much into it but like everyone in the family is horrible and they're really good at being horrible. Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, they're all so good at being the worst. No, it's, yeah, you're right. It's so good. It's so, like, the way that you say, like, it untwists and then it retwists is just an excellent execution. Like, it's exactly the kind of thing that, like, really spices up, like, a typical Agatha Christie. Because, like, even Agatha Christie mm-hmm. herself ran into this problem pretty early on in her career where, if you do too many murder mysteries, like it's becomes very, very difficult to do it new. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, with the mousetrap, which is still running on like 50 some odd years, mm-hmm. uh, because don't spoil it for me because, because I haven't yeah, seen it. No, good because you're not supposed to spoil it. That's the whole thing, right? Is yeah. that like when you enter or like when you leave the mousetrap, they ask you not to divulge the secrets so that it stays fresh for people that haven't seen it for the first time. Because yeah. there's only one way to do an Agatha Christie style murder mystery like this uh, without like the answer, like without becoming boring, basically. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like you kind of get this with, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm about to spoil uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Everyone was the murderer. Like, <laughs> and then or, reading a lot of Agatha Christie, you really get the sense like, like, that she struggled with this. And I think that that was something that Johnson was wanting to kind of like everybody that tries to do another murder mystery tries to circumvent this. And I think that Johnson did it beautifully. I think it he was did. wonderful the yeah. way he did it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was good. It was really good. And I'm so glad that this was such a success after everybody gave him some of the vitriol for The Last Jedi, even though it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> it was pretty good, actually. Yeah. Reevaluate how you watch media. Anyway, that's going to get me crucified. Um, everyone, everyone should go back through and watch all of the Star Wars movies again and reevaluate what they think about all of them. And that is my hot take. 
Yes, that's a good hot take. <laughs> and then it goes through all the, I probably me. I probably need to go back and reevaluate some of my opinions on Star Wars, but I think you're probably right. Yeah, and from what I heard, Glass Onion, which is the next Knives Out movie, is going to be like even better from what I've heard from critics. So fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ethan just texted me and said, "No, you're wrong. I have perfect opinions." <laughs> of course he does. No. Oh, I need to watch it. It looks so good. Uh, okay. Anything else you want to say about Knives Out? No, I'm good. You go ahead and introduce M. Oh my gosh, M. Okay, M is a 1931 German thriller film directed by Fritz Lang, starring Peter Roll, uh, Peter Lorre primarily uh also starring Otto Wernicke and Gustav Gringens I don't know either of those Peter Laurie is the big one uh for uh fans of old cinema you will most probably recognize Peter Laurie he's in the the role that I follow him or that I know him for most probably is uh, Arsenic and Old Lace Uh, he plays the kind of Igor character in that uh, he was also in the Maltese Falcon he was in Casablanca he was in Crime and Punishment he was in The Man Who Knew Too Much he was the first Le Shrif in Casino Royale. He has very iconic roles if you are as old as my grandparents. <laughs> yes. He he was a very uh recognizable figure and like you can it, he's very uh easy to recognize because he's kind of got like this bug-eyed look. Like his eyes are very big and he's got this pretty heavy set brow and uh he's a great actor. I'll give him that. Uh Peter Flory. Um so for those of you who don't know what M is, how do I explain this? It's <laughs> it's it's another murder mystery, which is why I've paired it with Knives Out. Um, but it is uh, one of the earliest examples of a procedural drama. It is one of the earliest examples of leitmotif used in terms of music and film. Uh, and it's really good. And it was also the last film Fritz Lang directed before he fled uh, the takeover of Nazi Germany uh, in the 1930s. And it's so good. <laughs> uh, so the story of M is uh, in Berlin in the 1930s, uh, children start to go missing. Uh, and it's in a way that it's pretty clear that a serial killer is doing it, but nobody knows who the serial killer is. Nobody has ever seen him. Uh, it's never like no adults have seen his face. And so everybody is terrified for their children that their children are going to be taken by this serial killer. Um, and it follows the attempts of two different parties, the police and the criminals of Berlin's underworld, uh, to kind of try to find this m- serial killer and track him down before he keeps hurting children, right? Who the criminal under- underworld very much style themselves as, like, the common folk heroes, if I remember correctly? Yes, that's correct, yeah. They but are very the much... People? They're the, the the Robin Hoods. They're the uh, it's yeah, it's a lot. Um, and so what follows is like it's kind of it's very much like a police procedural for the first half, uh, where you know the police are going around, you know, interviewing witnesses, taking fingerprint samples, doing handwriting analysis, and on the other half you have or on the flip side of that you have the criminal underworld, like you know, telling people to keep an eye out, uh, taking out revenge on people that they think might be the person because. The reason that they want to catch this guy is that uh, he's causing very, very real threat to their uh, their own criminal activities. As uh, soon after the murders, their uh, kind of speakeasy bar is raided by the police searching for this murderer. And they're like, well, we can't have that. So they're like, okay, let's just find this guy. Because we know it's none of us, because all of us are 
honorable criminals, put that in air quotes. Um, and so, But then like the second half of this movie is they managed to find the guy and they managed to find where he is thanks to the help of this old blind man who recognizes his whistle because he heard the whistle right before the little girl, the last little girl disappeared. And the song that this guy whistles is uh, the theme to In the Hall of the Mountain King by uh, Everard Riggs. So it's that. It's so creepy. <laughs> okay, I have to say, the first time I watched this, it was uh, while I was living in Provo. I went to see it at BYU's International Cinema. <laughs> and <laughs> it was so freaky because as I was walking home in the dark, somebody started whistling that behind me. And I was and so, and then you, so they managed to find this criminal. He's doing his little whisper thing. And then uh, as he's being cornered, like he can kind of tell this criminal played by Peter Lorre or this, this murderer, I should say, uh, played by Peter Lorre starts realizing that the police are maybe kind of onto him and he's trying to, trying to escape. Um, but then uh, one of the criminals tags him with like, they draw a chalk or like an M on the, their, uh, hand, which is where the name of the film comes from. It's M from Murderer. He scribbles it on his hand with chalk and then like slaps the guy on the back with his hand so that he'll be tagged as the murderer. Uh, but this guy doesn't realize that that's what's happening and so that's why the police are following him and he like sees it and there's this like really good shot where he catches his shoulder in a shop window and he realizes what's happened and he's like, oh crap, I've been framed or I've been had. I gotta go. And so he starts like running and it's this really, really tense scene where like he flees and he manages to hide in the attic of like this office building uh, but they end up catching him the criminals end up catching him before the police do and they take him to face a kangaroo court in like this old abandoned factory or something like it's just really fascinating because then like he, the, he has this whole big impassioned speech and the the last like well, I'm going to say like 10 minutes of the film go into this really interesting kind of suspended moment where like the film turns real time and uh he's just giving this speech um in real time as like as you know that the police are coming um but he obviously does not know otherwise he'd be trying to escape um and so peter laurie gives this whole impassioned speech about how it's not my fault i'm not a criminal like you guys you guys do it for pleasure or for money or whatever i do it because i have to because i'm driven to by like god-given instinct or whatever like it seems to really affect the criminals i honestly don't know what i think of it still i think it's bs but <laughs> <laughs> well um, he basically what he's saying is um right he's saying like i have this like craving i have this hunger i hate myself because I see myself as like an animal, right? Yeah. When I like, do this, you're no better than me because you could stop it at any time. But I'm. Yeah, an he's animal. saying, I he's saying like you guys, you're choosing to be criminals, and you're not seeing the irony in that. Mm -hmm. But he is. He sees the irony in that, right? Because he's caught by them. Yeah, and he he's he finds a great deal of irony in it, and he like begs to be handed over to the police because he believes that the police will treat him more fairly, which is probably true. And then the very end of the film shows the grieving mothers of the children that were killed. But you forgot to say that the police busted, bust in. Oh yeah, the police bust in, they catch the kangaroo court, uh, they arrest everybody, basically, but like especially him. Uh, afterwards, you see the mothers of the children are weeping in the gallery as he's uh, being tried. And the translation that I had on this kind of made me roll my eyes because the translation they gave when I first watched this was, won't somebody think of the children? And I was like, 
this whole thing has been for the children. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, but the translation given on the Wikipedia page is no sentence will bring the children back. And, you know, you have to keep closer watch over the children, which is a little bit more interesting and nuanced to me. Yeah. Especially because at the time, uh, the director of this film, Fritz Lang, saw the rise of the Nazi party and he hated it. He mm -hmm. despised it. He despised what fascism was doing to his country. He hated what the fear mongering was doing. And I think that there are a lot of themes that he's trying to communicate in that. Whether or not he does a good job or like what those themes might be uh, is an entirely different discussion that would require so many more rewatches of this movie and a much more intricate knowledge of pre-Nazi Germany than I have. <laughs> um, uh, but it's really, it's just, yeah, it's really interesting to see Lang's anger and frustration at the politics of what was going on in his country being translated into this film, which is, but like on its own, even without that, this, it's such a good thriller. It's such a good murder mystery. It's this, like, it's a really good, like police procedural. It's a fantastic film all around. 10 out of 10. It's love it. Fantastic and really good. Yeah. Do you have something to talk about? Uh, I don't really have anything. No. Um, other I do than also want to mention that Fritz Lang considered this film to be his magnum opus. So yeah, good film. Good film. Ooh. Really good film. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic when I first saw it. Of course, yeah. I watched it with you because you wanted me to watch it. So, Yeah, I think, did I invite you to my Halloween party when we did it, or did we just watch it by ourselves? Uh, that, was a, that was a Halloween party. Okay, yeah, I thought so. Because I did know that we did it for one of my Halloween parties. I just wasn't sure if you had been there for that. So, okay. yep. Yeah, uh, between these, which one do you think wins out? That's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it's such a like toss up because you know I don't want to disgrace either one of these movies they're both so well done so well written um I'm going to go with Knives Out what do you think mm, I was kind of leaning towards M just cuz like it's kind of got that more history behind it but I do think as a film I think you're probably right that Knives Out is just a little bit more tighter because it does have like I mentioned with Emma 2028 kind of is standing on the shoulders of giants um, for knives out. That is M 31 included. I think it does this thing right, where M is very, like a very linear storyline. The only real character in it is Peter Laurie's character. Everyone else, they're all kind of minor characters and he's the focus of the movie. And I think knives Out does a really good thing where it takes a lot of kind of separate strings and wraps them together in a really cool way. Uh, okay, I'll take so that. So based off yeah. of that... And I think that Brian Johnson's use of character is a lot better, too. Yeah. But, well, you know, like, again, this is such a hard decision to make. I know, it's so hard. Everybody should go watch Knives Out and M1931, especially M1931. You can find it for free on YouTube. And, like, you probably haven't seen it yet. And we're moving on. Hooray, last one. Uh, Parasite versus Arrival. Um, you know Arrival. Why don't you introduce Arrival? Ooh, Arrival. Okay. I do want to explain really quickly my decision between this. These were kind of like my toss-up spots. So I picked two uh, critically acclaimed films that I had not yet seen. Arrival is a 2016 American science fiction drama film directed by his name again, Denny Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> And adapted by Eric Hesserer. Uh So it's actually based on a, a short story, Story of Your Life, 
which is I think is so incredible. Like that's so bizarre to me that this was at one point a short story. Yeah. Like, how would this be a short story? <laughs> I need to read that book. Or that's a short story, I guess, okay. not a book. Yes. It's a novella, technically, I think. So. Yeah. It stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, Michael Stuhlbarg, and C. Ma. And uh, basically, Amy Adams... So, uh, Arrival is about uh, alien contact. The first contact that it makes with us. Um, and the consequences that it has for the human race. Um, basically, these giant, like, oval-shaped... They're kind of like... I don't even know what shape they are. Yeah, they're kind of ovaloid, like they're rounded on one side and kind of concave on the other. It's almost like a lens. Yeah, and it's they're gigantic. They're like yeah, oh, they're hundreds enormous. of feet large. Yeah. They're just hanging in the air. This is all over the news. So Amy Adams is a linguist who is recruited by the U.S. Army to go and study one of these up in Montana. And so she studies it and tries to, like, tries to figure out the language that they have. And over time, she's able to piece it together. And as she does it, she begins to understand things. And she begins to have flashbacks or flashes of memory of when her da- daughter died from uh, an incurable illness. I'm not going to spoil anything because it's so good. So if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. But basically, it's about like it's it's so cool to me because it's a science fiction film that doesn't do the traditional science fiction stuff. It's like, what if we looked at aliens from the lens of linguistics? Yeah, which I love. I think that's so good. And the way that Louise approaches linguists, or Amy Adams' character, uh, approaches linguistics in this film in terms of, you know, wanting to understand the aliens' true intentions, not wanting to give them, like, a wrong word so that, you know, they don't misunderstand those intentions. It's a really, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so fascinating. And I love the way, I love the way that Louise grows in this film, because, like, at the beginning, she's very mild-mannered. She's very timid. She doesn't really speak out a whole lot. She seems pretty, like, she doesn't really seem happy with her life, and she seems pretty content to just let it, things pass her by. Um, mm-hmm. But as the film goes on, she uses her passion in linguistics to speak up for herself and to uh, not, it's initially it's not speaking up for herself, it's speaking up for the aliens. And that leads to more speaking up for herself and doing what she wants. And she becomes very assertive by the end. If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. I will say the one, the one point that Kendall had an issue with when we watched it, she, she loved the plot twist. You can, you can get this a lot, but she loved, she loved when, uh, was it Abbott or Costello? One of the aliens was like, uh, Amy or not Amy. Her name is Louise. Louise sees the future. She was like, what? That's so cool. <laughs> um, but the one part that she did not like was like the last phrase is like uh, Donnelly and Banks holding each other. Mm-hmm. And Donnelly's like, let's make a baby. And she's like, that's such a dumb line. <laughs> okay, no, it is though, for real. Like, oh my gosh. Like, that's, that was... <laughs> I I I have to I had mixed feelings about Jeremy Renner going into this just because like I don't know like I was really worried that he was just going to be like Jeremy Renner 
just standing uh, there before me. He actually does a pretty good job of playing Ian in this film. I think it was really he does. Good. He's he's kind of like the nerdy kind of dorky dorky guy, you know? Yeah, he's like kind of dorky. It's not really like the Hawkeye persona at all. Like he's not smooth talking yeah. like Hawkeye is. He's like very like he's kind of sardonic still, but like he does it in a way mm-hmm. that's more charming. Uh, that line is very stupid. I do wish uh, Denis or Eric Heiserer had not written it like that, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it came out that way, so yeah. Alas, um, anyway, yeah, it's a good film. Yay. I like it a lot. Okay, uh, so tell me about Parasite. Yes, uh, Parasite. I guess I'll just do the introduction really quick. Um, Parasite is a 2019 South Korean dark comedy thriller film directed by Bong Joon Ho, who co-wrote the screenplay with Han Ji Won and also co-produced the film. Uh, stars Song Kang Ho, Lee Sun Kyun. Cho Yojung, Choi Wushik, Park Sodam, Jung Haijin, Park Myung-hoon, and Lee Jung-a. Film concerns uh, a small family, or it's, there's two families technically. The first is the Kim family. Uh, the Kim family is led by the father Kai Tak, who uh, was a former track and field star in Korea in his day. Uh, is no longer a track and field star, obviously, Uh, has not really been able to make much of his life. Uh, They live, the family lives, there's four people. There's Kim Kaisak, who is the father, and then there's Kiwoo, the son, Kijong, the daughter, and then uh, Chung-suk, who is the mom. Uh, They all live in this uh, basement apartment in Seoul. It's very small, it's very cramped. Uh, it floods when it rains. Uh, there's constantly like drunks coming to piss on the street light right above their window, and it's like it's pretty clear that all of them are pretty hard up. And while they are trying to make their way in the world and trying to elevate themselves, like the kids both want really want to go to school, but they are unable to just because of their circumstances in life and their father's inability to make anything of himself and their mother's inability to make anything of herself has really limited the kids' options. So uh, the son ha- gets a chance from uh, one of his school friends, his former school friends, who uh, is attending university, is wealthy, and is going about to go on a study abroad. He offers for uh, Kiwu to take his tutoring position for a wealthy family, who's the Park family. And the Parks are wildly wealthy. The father is like a major business mogul. The mom is like a stay-at-home mom. But like in that sense that you kind of get from movies about stay-at-home moms where like she's not like quite all there uh mm-hmm. like she's really trying her best but like clearly being wealthy has like kind of given her a little bit of the brainworms, and like she's just she's really trying her best but she this poor woman isn't being taken advantage of at every turn uh and then you've got uh the daughter and the son the daughter is needs help studying english for her uh college exams so uh you know uh Kiwu goes to tutor the daughter in english uh, using fake credentials because he obviously has not graduated college, he can't afford to go to college. And uh, very slowly, he and his family start worming their way into the Park family more and more uh, intimately. Uh, first, it's uh, getting the daughter in as, like, again, fake credentials as an art therapist for the son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she kind of bamboozles the mom into thinking that the son really needs art therapy, so she hires her. And then uh, she, the daughter then plants a trap in their chauffeur's car 
uh, so that it will look like he's been having sex in the car so that um, the dad can be hired as the new driver. And then after that, uh, they get the housekeeper fired by pretending that she has TB, which is so funny because uh, <laughs> she's got like this really bad allergy to peaches. Interesting. Yeah, it's a random kind of it, it's it's really interesting. Um, so they exploit her allergy to peaches to make it look like she has tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And then uh, get the mom hired as the housekeeper. Um, that is the first third of the movie. The second third is like it's split so tightly into first, second, and third act. It's wonderful. It's like you could, if I had to pick any film to do like a class on screenwriting, I think it would be that one. It's just so tight. It's so like perfectly segmented. So the second act starts when the Park family, the very nice wealthy Park family, uh, goes off on a vacation, like a camping trip or something, and uh, the Kims all decide to live it up in their house for a little while. They uh, get drunk, they eat their food, uh, they're just like hanging around in this nice big fancy house instead of having to hang out in their stupid little basement apartment, uh-huh. right? Uh, and then <laughs> uh, it starts to rain, and it's uh, discovered that actually before this. Um, so it's raining, they're in the house, uh, the doorbell rings, and it is the old housekeeper. And uh, so the the mom and the housekeep- and the former housekeeper never met, so like she's kind of the one to interface with her originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and this housekeeper is just like, I'm so sorry, I left something in the basement there, I just need to come and grab it, please help me. And so they're like, okay, so everybody else goes and hides, the mom lets her in. Uh, and they go to uh, look for whatever she has locked in the basement. It turns out that uh, in the basement there was a door that was accidentally uh, wedged shut by like something falling on the ground. Um, and it's kind of preventing this bookcase from sliding back. And what is behind this bookcase is a door that leads to like an underground secret bunker where the housekeeper, the former housekeeper's husband, has been living because he's on the run from tax evasion or from like loan sharks uh-huh. and so he's just been living in this bunker for three years and the wife is able to take care of him while she lived in the house as the housekeeper obviously not able to do that anymore uh and so it kind of becomes uh so as this all is happening the kim family is discovered and uh the husband of this family manages to take a picture of them and like threatens to out all of them for what they're doing and you know like swindling this family for all their money uh and they're like really jockeying for position over the house, but then all of a sudden, no, oh, no, they get a call, and the Park family has to come back home because it's raining too much. They can't. They had to cancel like camping trip, so it's like this real struggle and jockey for control over, like you know, is it the housekeeper and her husband going to prevail over the family? Uh, eventually, the family wins out. They manage to get their whole mess cleaned up, just barely in time for the Park family to come home. They get all set up in the house. They go to bed, and the family is able to sneak out of the house. And that kind of uh, concludes the second act. The third act is uh, they all they all come back to the house the next morning for uh, a birthday party for the son. There's a couple different uh, themes and theses in this movie, but really the what you get down to is would you do the same? Is like the really core tenet of this question is the question what would you do the same? Um, like I said, this could be like a perfect film for like a screenwriting class. It's it's just like it's a continuous escalation of the question. So in Act One, you've got the oh well, these people are poor and they don't they literally do not have any other way to advance their well being. Wouldn't you do the same? Like, wouldn't you do whatever it took to get the money that you needed to be able to go to school? Yeah. 
uh, or to like advance in your career, that kind of thing. And then in the second one, it's, or in the second act, it's, oh, well, wouldn't you do the same if you were feeling comfortable in this life and somebody threatened to take it away from you? Wouldn't you do whatever you could to protect it? And then in act three, it's, you know, would you go so far as to murder people that have threatened your livelihood and well-being? Would you go so far as to murder people who have killed your wife, who uh, despise you for all that you are, that kind of thing? It's just it's such a perfect escalation of the question each time. Yeah, it's really good. Like I said, it really comes down to, for me to the escalation of that question. And it's done so perfectly. And it's just like so tightly encapsulated. And it's, it's it, yeah, it's great. Between these two movies, I will defer to your professional opinion on it. Mm, professional, he says. <laughs> um, I think the real problem is that these movies are so different. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're really not like it's like they're both really fantastic and they're really good and I do yeah. love them. Um, but it's really hard to like find points of comparison for them because, mm-hmm. like, on one hand, you've got this like really, really conceptual sci fi thriller or not sci fi thriller, like, and it's not even a thriller, it's just a sci fi drama film. It has moments of like thrillingness, but it really it's like. Yeah, it's not about the scares or the creepiness. It's about the the message, right? I I do think it could come down to like empathy on each point. I think both films are pretty good examples of, or not really empathy, just like compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've got uh Louise Amy Adams's character who is uh showing compassion to the heptapods, uh trying to you know believe in their cause uh, or like believe in their good nature. You know, it, even as she's surrounded by military people convinced that they're here to kill everybody. Yeah. Um, and in Parasite, like, you have the same thing. Like I said, it's the question of, well, wouldn't you do the same? Just escalated to an insanely comic degree. Yeah. Um, which is also a really interesting study in compassion. Um, I don't know. If I elevate Parasite, will you watch it? Or do you want me to elevate Arrival instead? I would rather you elevate Arrival. Partially because that just means you know one fewer. You don't have to watch another film, yeah. If it, if you know if that's the determining factor, then no, and that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I I'm okay elevating Arrival. I think it's a wonderful film. I do like as much as I loved Parasite, I did love Arrival. There are moments in Arrival that made me feel really really cozy. Like <laughs> I know that's kind of a silly reason to elevate a film, but like. Mm-hmm. There were multiple points in Parasite where I had to like pause it and walk away just because like I knew what was coming next and like I felt like really icky about it or like really nervous about it because I get that way with thrillers sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, but with Arrival, like I never had any misgivings about what Abbott and Costello were doing. Uh-huh. Like I knew that they were there for something good and like, like I just wanted to leave them good and honest alien cephalopods. Yeah, I'm willing to take that. Let's do it. Let's all, all right. Arrival. Cool. We cool. did it. Um, let's do our outro. Uh, thank you for listening to Screenwalkers. Um, we have a website. I made a website. Finally. Hooray. Uh, it's screenwalkerspod.com. Uh, right now it's nothing except for a little about us page. By the time this episode goes live, it will have, uh, show notes. So you can look to that for that. Hooray. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. And catch you later i guess (laughs) what am i doing see ya Uh, yeah thanks so much for listening see ya adios